I next met with Dr. Dan Hayes, and to begin, we chatted about a critical effort he's championed over the years, quality control in ER and HER2 testing. So the background, of course, is that, in my opinion, breast cancer has been the paradigm for targeted therapy, going back to Bill McGuire and the Estuary Receptor, and then more recently, the work with HER2. And yet, there really has never been a unified approach to standardization of doing the assays. So the ASCO Tumor Marker Guidelines Committee, almost 15 years ago now, said that every patient should have ER and PR and HER2 performed on a biopsy, but we didn't dictate in any way how that should be done. The College of American Pathologists also had guidelines that said the same thing, but again, really didn't get down to nitty-gritty. And Liz Hammond, who is just a superstar in the field, has led a number of areas of quality assurance and standardization, has been very active in the College of American Pathologists, worked very hard to get the leadership of the College of American Pathologists to partner with ASCO to address how to do these assays as much as whether to do them. And so, as I'm sure you know, we had our first set of meetings in 2006 and 2007 after the really astounding data reported regarding trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. And one of the things that was very clear was that as important as that marker is for selecting patients for trastuzumab therapy, there was very little standardization on how it was done. So out of those deliberations came two things. I believe the most important one, and this is really Liz Hammond's initiative, was to establish proficiency testing that would be run by CAP in order to standardize not how the assays were done, but if you're going to do HER2 assays and if you want to get accreditation by CAP, you had to prove that you get the same results twice a year that was done centrally on a tissue microarray. And that was established in 2007. The uptake of doing that has just been almost exponential. And I think what it's done, it's taken some laboratories who were only doing a few a year and said, it's not worth our while to do proficiency testing twice a year. And so they've gotten out of the business, which I think is good. And the laboratories that want to do it, want to do it well, and they've gotten into proficiency testing. And we've seen a very high pass rate. And although it's hard to document, I'm pretty confident that we've improved the HER2 testing quality in the United States over the last four years to the extent that as a patient, if your assay was done in a CAP accredited or an equivalent accreditation lab, it was done right. And so you can believe the data. And so then two years later, we did a similar thing for ER. And again, I'll never forget Craig Allred, who I consider one of the, you know, real, the leader in estrogen receptor, saying, in his opinion, it was scandalous, the ER quality around this country. And so we had a similar meeting and set up guidelines for that. Antonio and Liz, again, really ran the show for that. And that paper was published about a year ago. Could I just ask from a practical point of view, right now, if a physician wants to know whether their patient is having accurate or appropriate ER or HER2 testing, let's say in their hospital, if it's being done in their hospital, would they say, are you American College of Pathology certified in both? Yes. That's pretty simple. Although, you know, I've heard a lot of people having seen the evolution of centralized assays like the ANCA type say, why do we have so many places doing these tests? You know, I always thought, you know, 
you were mentioning Craig Allred. I was thinking, why don't we just build him a building and let him do everything? <laughs> just send it FedEx to him. Why is every little place doing it? That was discussed quite a bit. You have to be sensitive to issues of restraint of trade and socialized medicine. And in many respects, that's what the proficiency testing was all about, is that rather than saying you can't do this because that's restraint of trade, what we did say is that if you want to get CAP accreditation, then you have to go through the proficiency testing, meaning if you're going to do it, you should do it right. And again, I think that has meant several laboratories who weren't doing it very often have dropped out. The ones who are doing it are getting accreditation. And a critical statement in the first HER2 paper that I want to really emphasize was that we encouraged patients and physicians to make sure that their HER2 testing and now ER testing is done in a CAP accredited or equivalent accreditation laboratory. And although that seems like a mundane statement, I think that's probably the most important statement in that paper. And this is similar to mammography standards. You remember back in the 1990s, there were actually federally mandated mammography standards to try to improve the quality of mammography. And it did. It meant that people were no longer doing mammography on non-dedicated machines, that people who read mammograms had to actually be trained and know what they were doing. And that's improved the quality of mammography nationwide. So centralized testing probably does increase the quality, but I don't think it's the only way to increase the quality. In Great Britain, for example, they have centralized testing in just four or five labs around the country. And in Canada, there's been an effort to do that. It's not been quite as well received. In the United States, that's a tough road to hoe. So I think instead of trying to centralize, what we've said is if you're going to do it, do it right. Now, that goes back to you asked about the 21 gene. You know, there's been a great deal of interest in whether or not for either of these two assays, HER2 or ER, IHC or FISH is the best way to do it. And what about looking at gene expression, looking at mRNA levels? And there's been a reasonable amount of data suggesting that RT-PCR for either of these markers for the RNA levels does correlate pretty tightly with either protein levels by IHC or in the case of HER2 with FISH. None of us has been quite ready to pull the trigger, though, and say that you could get away without doing IHC for HER2 or ER and rather just send off a sample, breast cancer sample, for the 21 gene. And part of that's because we really don't know what happens when you look at patients who are classically considered negative for both of these markers, so-called triple negative patients. So I think this is a matter of evolution in the field as to whether or not at some point in the future we'll have a single unified test that just gives you everything at once, or we'll continue to do the markers a la carte, if you will. And so I think this is an interesting thought, but we're not there. I don't know if you're involved at all with the discussion on anti-HER therapy and gastric cancer and the whole issue about what's HER2 positive and gastric cancer, but we've been heavily involved with that ever since it was first reported a couple years ago. Man, that is major mess. I was just going to say, it's a mess, Neil. And, you know, one of the things is breast cancer, again, going back to Mike Press's data, and I have enormous respect for Mike. You know, I call him when I've got a question. He and I don't agree on everything, but I sure have respect for him. And one of the things he taught us a long time ago is that 90% of breast cancers that overexpress the protein for HER2 are amplified. So 90% of the breast cancers that are HER2 positive do it because of an amplification of the gene. That's not the case in other cancers, including gastric. 
And so we can't necessarily extrapolate what we've learned from breast cancer and what Mike and Dennis Slayman have taught us into these other diseases. And it may well be that I'm certain that there are a number of gastric cancers that overexpress HER2 by mechanisms other than amplification, by stimulation of the promoter. And, you know, those may be more transient in their expression of HER2. And so the response rates to drugs like trastuzumab in those cases may not be as robust or it may be transient because the promoter may go up and down. I don't think we know what we're doing yet in gastric cancer, although I think the data are pretty exciting and it's a great area of research. Yeah, it really is exciting. And, you know, it's not rare. They're saying it's 20% of gastric, just like it pretty much is of breast cancer. But just sort of watching this from the outside and the pathologists and the oncologists talking about it, I kind of get the feeling that in gastric heterogeneity and the tissue is more, you know, in terms of sampling, but is that much of a problem with breast cancer? Well, let me really turn the tables, and I know you're aware of Soon Paik's letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and it just more sure. recently Edith Perez's paper in JCO, suggesting that in both the NSABP B31 and the NCCTG slash intergroup 9831. So these are two of the big randomized trials of trastuzumab versus not. In both cases, a couple hundred patients or so got into those trials, and because of HER2 positivity at their primary pathology lab, when blocks are sent into the central lab, either at the NSABP in Pittsburgh or at the Mayo Clinic, again, about 200 cases in each of those two studies had negative HER2 results. And in the NSABP's case with Soon Paik, they turned those samples every which way but loose. I mean, they've looked at FISH and SISH and RT-PCR and IHC with multiple antibodies, and they are negative. And yet the hazard ratio for trastuzumab versus not in those cases is identical. If anything, it's better compared to the ones who were classically HER2 positive. Now, there have been a number of explanations for this. The first is the obvious one, that these are just false negative tests, and the people in the NSAP and the Mayo Clinic don't know how to do HER2 as well as everybody else. I don't buy that because these are some of the people who taught us how to do these tests, so I don't think that's the answer. The second is that maybe the blocks sent centrally don't represent the blocks that were originally tested, and that may be true because the primary site is less likely to send their best block, so they're going to send a second block of another area of the tissue, and that brings up heterogeneity. And maybe you only need a little bit of HER2 positivity in one spot to predict that it's going to work or not. The third is that perhaps there are two classifications of HER2 positivity. One are those that are classically amplified. So the cells they send out to other areas in the body have that amplification you know, built in, and those are cancers that are addicted to the HER2 oncogene, and they benefit from, or a reasonable percentage of them benefit from trastuzumab. But perhaps there's a second group of cancers where the primary is HER2 negative, but when they get out to the tissues, in order to land and sit there and start growing, they upregulate HER2. Remember, HER2 is a stress response gene. So if I damage your heart, the first thing you do is your heart, your myocardium upregulates HER2 for a while to repair the damage and then brings it back down again. It's possible that a cancer micrometastasis finds itself in a place it doesn't belong and sees that as stress and upregulates HER2 and starts growing using that HER2 because it doesn't have the things it normally has to grow. And so it's very possible that maybe 
Unlike in a metastatic setting where in order to see benefit, I'm now getting into the stem cell theory. This is stuff Max Wisha has taught me at our institution. In the metastatic setting, to see a benefit, you really have to knock off the differentiated cells because they're the ones that are causing space-occupying areas and organ dysfunction. You don't have the time to sit and just stop the stem cell from reproducing and let those terminally differentiated cells go through three or four doublings and finally kill themselves because that's two or three doublings of a big lesion. That's a huge amount of cancer. But in the adjuvant setting, you have that time. And so maybe if you can keep those cells that are upregulating HER2, and this is all speculation, but maybe if you can keep those cells that are upregulating HER2 out as micrometastasis from using that mechanism, it might be beneficial. So you would get fooled that the primary cancer would be negative for HER2 because you're not looking at the cells you really want to get rid of, which are the cells out in the distant tissues. So we and others are trying to address this. This is all speculation. It should not be used to treat classically HER2-negative patients with trastuzumab right now. But as you know, the NSVP has actually started a new study for patients who are 1-plus or 2-plus to see whether or not trastuzumab is effective in those patients. I think that's a great trial. I'm very supportive of it, and I hope people really place their patients on that study. Yeah, that is a fascinating study. So let's talk a little bit about your cases. Why don't we start out with your 58-year-old woman? Yeah, so she was a 58-year-old lady, pretty, I think, you know, this is a case that represents probably 30% of newly diagnosed breast cancer patients, so it's pretty bread and butter oncology. And this actually goes back to the question you asked me earlier, how to do these particular assays. And I think right now, the 21-gene recurrence score should be used for its intended purpose. Again, I believe we might evolve in the future into one test for everything, but I don't think we're there yet. So this is a lady with a two centimeter grade two, ER positive, PR negative, HER2, two, two plus, and then FISH was 1.8, infiltrating ductal carcinoma, and she was node negative. So again, this case in the screening era represents 30 to 40% of newly diagnosed breast cancers. Could I ask a little bit about her? Was she the kind of person who was out on the internet getting information? Was she asking you a lot of questions, or was she just more saying, what do I do? No, she came in and said, you know, this was a screening mammogram, and she was otherwise healthy. Actually, this particular lady was a professional, but surprisingly to me, had not been on the internet, kind of said, you know, what do you think, Dr. Hayes? And I will tell you, Neil, what I do with a patient like this is we actually don't order the 21-gene recurrence or Oncotype DX, until we sit with the patient. And that's universal for all the faculty in my institution. So in this patient's case, I sat with her when I said, okay, if we take all node-negative patients, there's about a 30% chance of recurrence in the next 10 years. Two centimeters doesn't move us up or down very far. It's right in the middle. Being grade two doesn't move us up or down very far. Being ER positive maybe drops that 30% to 20% risk of recurrence. PR negative keeps it there. It doesn't move it any further to the left on the scale. She's HER2, 2 plus, and FISH is negative. So that's classically FISH, HER2 negative. But the 2 plus does worry you a little bit. I mean, it's not negative. So I told this patient that I thought if she didn't do anything, there's probably a 20 to 30% chance she'll have an incurable metastasis in the next 10 years if she doesn't do anything. So then I draw a double line across my little piece of paper, and I say, okay, now let's see what we can do about that. First thing is endocrine therapy, and I think endocrine therapy will drop that by 40 to 50%. 
So we've started with, let's say, worst case scenario, 30%, and half of 30 is 15. So that means she's got a 15 to 20% chance residual risk of recurrence, assuming we do endocrine therapy. And I put a big check mark there and say, we're going to do endocrine therapy. In fact, I tell many patients, especially if their husband's there, I'm not very paternalistic, but if you say no, most people have dogs, and you know how you give them their heartworm pill, you wrap it up in cheese every month. I said, well, I'm going to get your <laughs> husband to wrap it up in cheese and stick it down your throat. So they all laugh and say, okay, I got it. And then I say, now the second targeted therapy we have is HER2, and in your case, you're HER2 negative. And since, as far as we can tell, forgetting the small subsets from the NSABP and the NCCCG, trastuzumab will not be of value to you. And we don't have the NSABP trial open at our center I would not recommend anti-HER2 therapy, so I put a big X by that. And so now I say that the struggle here is with chemotherapy. And let's assume that we don't have a predictive factor for chemotherapy. Let's just assume that chemotherapy reduces the odds of recurrence by a third, no matter what your biology is. I'm not sure that's true. We can talk about that in a minute if you want to, but let's assume that's true. So 30% of 15 is 5 that's probably a bit of an overestimate because we're dealing with sort of reverse compound interest. You know, if you have $10 and you get 10% per year at the end of 10 years, you don't have $11. You have whatever it is. I can't do it in my head, $12. The same is true the other way around. When we talk about a relative reduction in the odds of recurrence, we're talking about that per year. And, of course, each year there are fewer people to recur. So a 50% reduction in recurrence rates is actually not half at 10 years. It's a little less than half or 30% is less than 30. So let's assume that we help three or four patients out of 100 by giving them adjuvant chemotherapy in this situation. Well, the risk of potentially life-threatening toxicity with chemotherapy in this country, even within the cooperative groups, where I think probably that's the highest quality of care, is about 1%, whether it's infection or cardiac complications or secondary leukemias, you add them all up, it's about 1%. So when I do these numbers, if I get an absolute benefit of 1% or 2%, I say I don't think chemotherapy is worth it because it's outweighed by that 1%. If I add up these numbers and I get the absolute value is above 5%, I think 6% is high enough above 1%, it's worth it. And if I get a calculation of 3 or 4%, I don't know what to do. And that was the way it used to be for every one of these patients. You've heard me say they belong to the 3% club. And I used to say, I don't know what to do. And they'd say, well, what if I was your wife? And I'd say, if you're my wife, I'd get another oncologist to take care of you because I don't know what to do. So the 21 gene recurrence score, of course, helps move people to the left or right on that scale. About 50% of patients will fall in the low recurrence. And in that case, we can say with integrant therapy, the odds of your recurring are less than 10%. So again, if we apply a one-third reduction due to chemotherapy, we're only going to help one or two people out of 100 at most. It's not worth it. If you're high recurrence, the odds of your recurrence with endocrine therapy are over 20%, and a third of 20 is 6 or 7. So it exceeds my cutoff for who I would treat, and I feel more comfortable telling them I think they should be treated. And that's a quarter of this group of patients, node-negative ER-positive patients. And then we're still left with about a quarter of patients who fall into the intermediate category where their absolute benefit is calculated to be 3 or 4%. And as you know, the Taylor RX study has now closed. It's fully accrued. And it was specifically for those patients 
who were in that intermediate category, and all of them got endocrine therapy, and then half of them were randomly assigned to chemotherapy, and the other half to not. And you and I will be sitting out on the old folks' home porch telling big stories by the time those data are out. But at least we finished the trial. I'm never that porch. <laughs> yeah. You, you live in Florida. You'll be there before I am. <laughs> um, so, you know, but that'll also be a real goldmine because we've collected tissue and quality of life. There are a number of ancillary studies around TaylorRx. I think it's a very exciting study and really can't wait for the results to start telling us. I think what that's going to do is just collapse that intermediate zone with a cutoff that we can believe where we would say chemotherapy, yes or no. So I'm just kind of curious, though, this particular woman, when you started talking about chemotherapy, did she, you know, put up huge red flags? I'll never take it. I want it for sure. Any experiences in the family? So, of course, we all have patients like that. And that's one reason we discuss these cases with patients before we order the 21 gene. I actually say to her, if you would take chemotherapy for as little as a 1% to 2% benefit, in other words, you fear cancer more than any side effect, toxicity, you know, potential life-threatening problem, then there's no reason to do the 21 gene recurrence score. You should just take chemotherapy. If, on the other hand, you would not take chemotherapy, even if I improved your chances of survival by 10% over the next 10 years, then there's no reason to do this assay either because you're not going to take it. Most patients, and she was one of them, said, you know, this seems pretty reasonable to me. I don't want to take chemotherapy for no reason, but gosh, if you told me it was worth my while, and she agreed that, you know, above 5 or 6% would be worth her while, she'd like to know those results. And so she did not have strong feelings one way or the other. She really, I think most of our patients said, you know, this makes sense. I trust you. You do this more than I do. Let's move forward with the 21 gene and see what happens. So what happened with her? So in her case, her 21 gene recurrence score came back low. She had a recurrence score of 12. And if you put that in the algorithm, it suggests that if she only does endocrine therapy, the odds of her recurring are probably 5% or less. And again, if chemotherapy works in those patients, a third of five is only one or two. And you know, it just can't be worthwhile in that group of patients. And so I told her I didn't think she should take chemotherapy. I told her she had a quite good prognosis. We should take endocrine therapy only. She was ecstatic over that, so we put her on endocrine therapy. I should say that in our setting, and actually now the NCCN has reported this as well, the use of chemotherapy in this group of patients, node negative, ER positive patients, has dropped by about 20% because of this assay. And when this assay first came out, I went in front of several third-party payers who were reluctant to pay for it, and I said, you know, look at what this is going to do. This is going to decrease chemotherapy in a lot of patients that we're treating in that 3% club. It's also going to establish that it's really worthwhile taking for the patients who get moved into the high recurrence rate. And I think that's an important issue is that it assures them that they're not wasting their time, that the toxicities they're undergoing are worth it because of the chemotherapy benefits. You know, it's funny, as I, I was listening to you talk, I was flashing on another interview that I did with you the night before the San Antonio meeting. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. And you go, 
there's a guy you got to talk to. <laughs> and it was soon Paik. Yeah. And it was the very first time. Was that 2002? Uh, no, a little, ver- I think it was more like three or four. But uh, yeah. anyhow, so that was the very first time he presented it. And I did interview him right after the presentation. And, you know, it's interesting now it's you know, kind of part of practice. But my recollection, particularly the first year, was that people were really like, well, you know, what's the big deal? Well, and I completely agree. I think it's been a fabulous move forward for us. And as you know, one of my shticks has been how we do tumor marker research. And the reason we have so few tumor markers is because we don't value tumor markers, and therefore the research has been crummy, and there are all these studies of convenience, you can't believe it. Give Soon and his colleagues in the NSAVP enormous credit. They did this right. They started out with a test set. They came up with the algorithm. They went to a validation set of patients who were identical and showed that it's true. It's now been validated in ATAC and others. I'm a great believer in this. The other issue about valuing tumor markers, and I think this is important to get out to surgeons and medical oncologists, this is an expensive test for a test. It's $3,500 or $4,000. And every time I'm at a big meeting, people are wringing their hands. And I don't mean to sound like a shill for the company. I'm not. But people are wringing their hands. Oh, it's so expensive. And I usually look them in the eye and say, do you use dose-dense chemotherapy? And they say, well, of course, you know, it improves survival. And I say, how much do you think one shot of pegfilgrastum costs? Well, yeah, it's $35,000, $4,000. And I said, okay, how many times do you do that in dose-dense therapy? Add that up. This is one of those, okay? And if this moves 20% of people out of chemotherapy, the savings are enormous. That's not 20% relative reduction. That's 20% less people. 20% fewer patients are getting chemotherapy in our setting. And again, the NCCN has shown that too now. And so again, in terms of value, this test, in my opinion, is every bit as valuable as a chemotherapy that improves median survival by, you know, three months. This is a fabulous test. The other thing that was brought to my attention when I was, you know, in the mid part of the last decade in front of the third-party payers was, well, doctors will order these tests, but then they won't act on them anyway because they don't trust them and they don't value markers. And again, that really raised antenna for me. It's probably true is that if physicians can't trust the markers, they're not going to use them, but they may order them anyway. This goes back to ASCO CAP trying to, you know, make markers well done. The reassuring thing to me is this 20% reduction in chemotherapy. It really does look like physicians are trusting this assay and using it appropriately to not give patients needless chemotherapy. That comes out of their pocket. Let's give credit to our colleagues because, you know, oncologists get paid more money by giving infusional therapy because of the way we're reimbursed. And so to everybody's credit, the patient's care has come first as opposed to the pocketbook. And I don't want to sound corny, but I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I agree. And let me ask you, kind of going back to this woman, a couple of bread and butter questions that we can maybe get quick updates on, because there's still stuff happening in the basics. And first, endocrine therapy, you said that's what this woman's going to get. What specific endocrine therapy and what's your rationale? Yeah, so I spoke with her for a long time. In a patient with a prognosis this good, tamoxifen and the AIs are almost identical in terms of outcomes. As you know, the AIs are slightly better than tamoxifen. The proportional reduction of recurrence with tamoxifen is about 40%. With the AIs, it's probably 50%. But when you've got such a good prognosis to begin with, that's only going to translate to at most one extra patient per 100 who doesn't recur in the next 10 years if you use an AI. 
However, this patient had previously had a deep venous thrombosis using birth control pills when she was much younger. And although we don't have great data on this, that suggests that this is a patient who is prone to thrombosis on an estrogen. And therefore, I felt that tamoxifen would be risky. So I recommend that she take an aromatase inhibitor. She was clearly postmenopausal, and you and I have talked about this in the past. That's a big issue to make sure your patients are really postmenopausal because if they have functional ovaries, you can awaken an ovary and go the wrong way. You can actually increase estrogen levels. She was clearly postmenopausal. She had not had a period for about five years in her case. She had a relatively late menopause at the age of 53, but she's 58 now, hadn't had a period in five years. I didn't check estrogen levels in her case because we were so far out. And she had no evidence of osteopenia or osteoporosis. I always do a bone mineral density before I start an AI to be sure we're not starting in trouble. She takes calcium and vitamin D every day. Again, she's really done a great job of good health maintenance of non-cancer issues. And so we talked about it, and she went on an aromatase inhibitor. And how is she doing on it? Yeah, fortunately, she is one of the 60% of women who has not developed this AI-associated musculoskeletal syndrome. This is a big deal. Again, you and I have talked about this as well. You know, 40% of people get it. And in our setting and Don Hirschman's data and others, maybe up to 20% of patients who start an AI can't tolerate the AI because of this AI-associated musculoskeletal syndrome. And I think that was underestimated in the large randomized trials. It's a big deal. You may have seen the letter and the response. Ian Tannock wrote a letter to Lancet Oncology about two months ago saying that the benefits of the AIs may actually have been either over or underestimated, depending on how you want to put it, because the dropout rate is so high, and many patients don't tell their doctors they've quit taking it. And in the big randomized trials like ATAC and Big 198, they didn't do drug levels. You know, they didn't do pill counts. They just depended on the patient saying, yes, I take them. And you know, there are data that patients are intimidated by their physicians and come in and say, oh, yeah, I'm taking it, and they're really not. So the adherence and persistence to oral medications is going to become an increasingly important issue in oncology as we're getting more and more drugs that are oral. I think the oral drugs are more convenient for patients. They don't have to come in and get infusions. But if you don't take the drug, it doesn't do you any good. And we're going to have to work out mechanisms where the patients don't feel intimidated and are comfortable telling us they can't take the drugs. And we need to come up with strategies that identify who can tolerate one drug and not the other, and also how to make intolerable drugs tolerable. So if I could toot my own horn for just a minute, I have a fabulous young faculty member, Lynn Henry, and she got very interested in whether duloxetine, which, as you know, it's a very effective antidepressant, but it's also been approved for various pain syndromes, peripheral neuropathy of diabetes, and also chronic pain syndrome. And I want to be clear, I have a conflict here. My brother actually developed this for Eli Lilly. He was head of neurosciences, so I stayed out of it, and my brother stayed out of it from the Lilly side, but... Lynn put together a little pilot trial, about 30 patients. It's in press now. And of those 30 patients who were having AI, I'm going to call this AIMS, AI-associated musculoskeletal syndrome. So we call that AIMS. Of the 30 patients were put on, five or six of them had toxicity of duloxetine, that they just didn't like the drug. And that's consistent with the pain literature and the psychiatry literature. But of the 25 or so who stayed on it, half of them had their AIMS symptoms just disappear just melt away. Really impressive. We're now trying to mount a prospective trial to confirm that this is true, but I think that's the kind of strategy we're going to have to take, not just throw a drug at a patient and say, you know, see you in six months, but actually work with these folks 
to make sure they take the drugs we give them. Let's go back to this lady. She didn't have that. She had some sexual difficulties due to vaginal dryness and dyspareunia, and that's been a problem. We've tried non-hormonal creams and that sort of thing. I would also caution, though, against using estrogen vaginal preparations. We know those are absorbed, and we and others have reported that, and they're absorbed at levels that are clearly systemically estrogenic. And so while they work, great. I mean, there's no question that if you've got anti-estrogen-associated symptoms and you take estrogen, they'll go away. You may be counteracting exactly the effect you want with an AI. So you have to be very, very careful about using those. So I don't know if this issue came up in the tumor board that this woman was presented at. I guess it depends on exactly when she presented. But how would you respond to the question of should a patient like this be offered a bisphosphonate, specifically zoledronic acid? I can imagine somebody in the tumor board going, oh, Dr. Hayes, I saw this paper in the New England Journal from Austria saying that there were fewer recurrences. What about this patient? Yeah, so in our setting, we do not routinely recommend a bisphosphonate outside of a clinical trial with the intent of treating cancer. As you know, there are several studies that have addressed this issue. Three of those were from Europe and used oral clodronate. Two of those are positive for reduction in recurrences. One of those, actually, there were more recurrences. So, of course, you know, nothing's easy here. And then there was Michael Ganant's paper in the New England Journal, the study from Austria. Now, that was specifically for young women, premenopausal women who were ER positive. All of them had ovarian suppression with gaserolin. I believe it was gaserolin. And then they were randomly assigned to tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. That was the primary objective of that study. Then they were secondarily also randomly assigned to zoledronic acid every six months or not. And my understanding was that the principal intent there was actually to prevent the osteoporosis that would be induced by ovarian suppression in an otherwise young woman. But, of course, they were also interested in cancer outcomes. The primary objective of that study actually turned out to be negative. There's no difference between an AI or tamoxifen, which surprised me. And there are other studies addressing this as well, soft and text. So we'll get more information about that as we go down the pike here. But the bisphosphonate study was positive for reduction in recurrences and even mortality. And a lot of us have scratched our heads and wondered, you know, is this real or not? As you know, then, a second study, the so-called Azure study, which is a randomized trial in postmenopausal women principally, was just reported at San Antonio. It was not positive in everybody, but there were some subgroups in which it was positive. The NSAVP has yet another trial. The results haven't been reported yet. And I think the question of using a bisphosphonate with the intent to prevent cancer is just not answered yet. And so in our setting, we don't do it. We do use bisphosphonates if a patient, of course, is developing osteopenia or osteoporosis on an aromatase inhibitor, as we would in any postmenopausal woman. In that case, we don't have a set policy or protocol as to which of the bisphosphonates we use. We usually work with the primary care doctors. If they have a preference over one of the orals, that's fine. If they prefer that we give them twice a year zoledronic acid, that's fine too. Yeah, I think there are a variety of ways to approach that. So in this lady's case, we didn't start anything because her baseline BMD was within normal levels for her age and have her on calcium vitamin D. We'll repeat the BMD in two years. If it shows she is beginning to lose bone density, then we'll start her on something. 
So I don't know whether you have a lot of contact with your myeloma colleague, Dr. Jakubiak, do you? I have quite a bit of contact with him. So, you know, I don't know if he's ever told you that, you know, they're chewing over a study in myeloma that compared zoledronic acid to clodronate that found greater survival in the patients who got zoledronic acid. So they're having kind of the same debate. That was a big study from England. Heard about that one? Yeah, I have. So the final question I want to ask you is, I want to get back to your 58-year-old woman with the low oncotype, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to come back to you and say, suppose she were 38. Same thing, ER positive, PR negative, HER2 negative, grade 2, same exact thing. She's 38, but one of three sentinel nodes are positive. She has not yet had an axillary dissection. She hasn't had a recurrence score, and she's coming to you. So that's a great question, and there are a number of issues that have to be addressed in this lady. I think the first one for the surgeons on the line here is, should she have a node dissection? And I know you're aware of the American College of Surgeons Oncology Group, Z11, and would suggest that maybe a node dissection would be of no value to her. In our hands, we have been fairly conservative in adopting those data until I think the field matures a bit. And our surgeons would be a little reluctant, I think, not to do a node dissection in a young premenopausal woman because there weren't many of those in Z11. Z11 was mostly postmenopausal women who were ER positive. Even in our own setting, that's been controversial, and we're not sure exactly. You know, we're very sure which patients we would recommend it, but then there's a gray zone that our surgeons are battling with each other, and they often look to us then and say, well, you know, will this change what you do? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about. I mean, obviously, you have the issue of local control, which, again, we have data, but, you know, maybe it's not enough. But does it change your approach? And what about oncotype in this situation? Yeah, so I was going to say, in our case, it won't change what we're going to do, so we toss it back to them. The second question then is, would I use oncotype to direct therapy in this lady? And I would not. And some of this is based on my own data. So this is a very controversial area, in my opinion. Now we're starting to say, you know, the first case, the 58-year-old with node negative, I used oncotype as a prognostic factor. And I said very carefully, even if chemotherapy works, it can't help enough patients to make it worthwhile because our prognosis is so good. Okay, you've just taken a 38-year-old woman and given her a single positive node. Even if she has a low recurrence score, if she only takes tamoxifen, her prognosis is not as good as if she were node negative. Nodes do count. Now, one issue is whether a single positive sentinel node has the same kind of long-term prognostic information as a positive node from a classically performed node dissection in 1980. Because remember, when you pull out a sentinel node, you're specifically looking for the first node that the cell went to, and the pathologist doesn't have 30 nodes to look at. He or she only has one or two or three. In this lady's case, you said she was one for three. So they're going to spend more time looking, and they're more likely to find an occasional positive node that might have been missed in the old days. So you could argue that she would have been called node negative back in the NSABP, you know, B14 trial. Well, also, I guess one of the issues to me is, would you approach a patient differently who just had a sentinel node that was positive without a dissection? And if that same patient who had one sentinel node positive, but also then had an axillary dissection that was negative? Well, so I don't know. And I don't think we have the data. 
ATEC is probably the closest thing we have, and they've suggested that in their hands, people who have low recurrence, one to three positive nodes, their prognosis is pretty close to the patients who had negative nodes, although it's still above it. And when you get into more than three positive nodes, then there's a big step up in the odds of recurrence in the low recurrence score patients. Now, let me just quote Kathy Albin's paper. When I joined the Southwest Oncology Group about 10 years ago, the Oncotype DX test had just been developed. Sinpeik had not reported his data yet. And we began a collaboration with Genomics Health in which Peter Ravden had worked very hard to collect tissues from about a third of the patients in SWOG protocol 8814. And as you recall, that was the study started in 1988 for node-positive ER-positive patients, but now they're node-positive. They all got tamoxifen, and then two-thirds got CAF, and a third didn't. In that trial, we did find that when we tested those samples, that low-recurrent score patients had a better prognosis than high-recurrent score patients in the tamoxifen-only arm. So the recurrent score is prognostic. But again, their odds of recurring were higher, say, if we compared with the NSAVP study, where they're all node-negative. Secondly, and this is, I think, what begins to be key, very similar to what Soon Paik showed in B20, is that as you go left to right on the recurrence score axis, the relative benefit of chemotherapy seemed to get greater and greater and greater. So that if you're in a low recurrence score patient, the chemotherapy versus no chemotherapy was almost unity. There was almost no benefit at all, if any. And if you go into the high recurrence score patients, the chemotherapy versus non-chemotherapy effect was really large, close to a 50% reduction. So that suggests something that Mark Lippman started way back in the 70s. I'm sure you remember the paper. It was in the New End Journal where he had a very small group of metastatic patients, I think 50 or 60 patients, all of whom have gotten chemotherapy, a retrospective study, and he suggested that patients who were ER negative had a much higher response rate than ER positive patients. And that paper set off, I can still remember where I was when I read that paper. I was a med student with Larry Einhorn, and he said, you got to read this paper. And I, <laughs> I said, geez, I'm going to be an oncologist. Here I have Larry Einhorn telling me to read Mark Lippman's papers. I mean, you know, I'm the four scump of oncology here. So anyway, that set off a firestorm, and there were a number of retrospective sort of studies of convenience done over the next five years, and some said, yes, it's true, others didn't, and so on and so forth. And then the idea kind of fell down, but in the last five years or so, with intrinsic subtyping, whether it's Oncotype DX or other assays, and in neoadjuvant trials, the suggestion is, again, that patients who are luminal A or low recurrence score may not have chemosensitive cancers. And so perhaps it's not that they don't need the chemotherapy. Their prognosis may still be poor, or poorer, I should say. It's that the chemotherapy may not work. They need something, but it's not chemo. Exactly. Now, in my opinion, the stakes are high here before we accept this. We have 40 years of research now and the Oxford Overview saying that chemotherapy reduces the odds of recurring and dying, especially in node-positive patients. And the data I've just quoted to you are based on low-level of evidence studies or perhaps higher level of evidence, but still subgroups of subgroups not prospectively planned. We've tried to look in the Oxford overview. We have a little committee called Transox, 
And of course, the assays for ER and Key 67 and proliferation and grade and even HER2 are mixed the way they were done. We haven't been able to actually identify this effect. It looks like almost everybody in the overview seems to benefit from chemotherapy, but we're concerned that the markers weren't done the way we should or whatever. So given this, the Southwest Oncology Group has just initiated a new prospective trial. If they wish to do this, will be profiled. If they're high recurrence score, they should get chemotherapy, no question about it. But if their recurrence score is less than 25, they'll all get endocrine therapy, you know, modern endocrine therapy, and half of them will get modern chemotherapy and the other half will not. That trial opened about three months ago, maybe two and a half months ago. We've already got, I think, about 100 patients accrued. I presented that. Neil, you're always interested in how patients, you know, see things differently than doctors. And I presented this now to two patients, and I was afraid this would be a really tough sell. And it's interesting to me, the two patients I presented to who actually sort of had the psyche of the first woman, the 58-year-old woman, kind of, well, whatever you think, doc, were very excited about being part of this study, very enthusiastic about being part of this study, with the feeling that, you know, they want to get chemotherapy if they need it and it's going to help, but they don't want to take therapy that's not going to do them any good. And since I said, I'm an equipoise here, I really don't know if this answer is right. The study is based on, you know, a paper I'm a senior author on. It's based on other papers that I've been part of and even been first author on, and even I'm not sure of this effect. So we're pretty excited about this study, and like Taylor Rx, we're going to collect everything we can, and this will be a goldmine for the next generation of oncologists to address just what you said. If it turns out the theory is true, they're still going to have a worse prognosis, but chemotherapy is not going to help them. The tissues we'll collect from this, the samples we'll collect from this may help us identify new targets that we can go after in the future. So it's very exciting.